All right, we are in Revelation chapter 3, so take your Bibles, turn there if you would. It's wonderful to be together tonight. And we have come to the last in this series on the church at Laodicea. You remember in the line of letters that this is, of course, the last one and the worst one. This is a church in such a sad state that it made the Lord Jesus Christ ill, so he says. It was a church that caused him to, when he thought about ministry and effectiveness, when he thought about his people and what they should be doing, when he thought about a church that had a name and busyness but had become self-sufficient and arrogant, when he thought about this church as it relates to the the poor souls that tried to come in contact with it or maybe thought it was a place to go and found nothing when they got there. When the Lord Jesus Christ thought about this church, he said it was really doing nothing. It was stagnant water. And it made him gag. It was a church that had become, as the text says, neither hot nor cold wasn't doing anything for the truth, and it wasn't doing anything against the truth. There wasn't enough truth there in the content of its ministry or its message to make a difference anywhere, at any point. Worse, this was a church that made bold claims about its spiritual condition. You remember verse 17, they said, we're rich, we're wealthy, we have need of nothing. These are These are spiritual claims. Clearly, the town was wealthy. We saw that in its history, but that wasn't the point. In fact, it became really a a very interesting metaphor for its spiritual condition. The claim was as bold as the bank accounts they sat on. It was a claim to need nothing else. It was a claim to have arrived. It was a claim to have reached a plateau spiritually. And it was arrogant because they said, we need nothing else. Look, if you ever get to the place in your Christian life or a church, our church, our ministry ever gets to the place where we do not get up every day utterly dependent upon Christ, something is desperately wrong. Jesus said in John 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches and there must be nutrients flowing all the time for fruit to be produced. And what did he say in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we ever get to the place in our Christian life where we don't wake up dependent upon Christ, where we sit back on our proverbial laurels, when we imagine that we have need of nothing, This is when we're most desperate. And to counter their claim, Jesus said in verse 17, you don't know the reality of your spiritual condition. In other words, when you say you need nothing, you become more myopic. Blindness sets in. The claim in and of itself is blindness, and yet it implodes in on itself and becomes further blindness. Hardened heart, can't see your condition. You make the claim, you don't know what you're talking about. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the Christian life is to be lived in a discipleship dynamic under the truth, passing the truth back and forth from love, 
that is rooted in a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. And when you depart from those things, Paul said, you're left to speculate. In other words, you're left with human opinion, not truth, and you don't even know it. And the next thing that happens to you is you make bold claims about truth or what you think is truth, but you have no idea what you're talking about. So speculation, opinions, and ignorance, and the pride that makes the bold claims about it. That's what happens when you depart from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. This is Laodicea. This is Laodicea. In verse 17, he says, you don't know that you're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. That's your real condition. And he says, they're lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. He wished that they would have either fervency or hostility. At least there was something to work with. At least the soil would be soft. At least the soil would be something either turned up violently or soft and ready for the seed. There's no fervency here. There's no hostility here. And to be blatant either way is better than being a bland ministry. We saw the dangers of a lukewarm church when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Jesus says that lukewarm spirituality makes him sick. And he wants to judge this ministry in his righteousness. He wants to judge them, at least insofar as he says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will do this. I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because your self-perspective is smug. You don't realize it, that you're actually pitiable. You're actually pathetic. You say you're rich, but you're actually impoverished morally. There's nothing going on inside morally. You say that you can see, but you're actually able, unable to understand or perceive. You're self-deceived. You say that you're fully clothed in all that you need for a robust ministry as a church, and he says you're exposed. You're actually totally exposed. You're particularly vulnerable to everything that's destructive. Your pores are open. You're like a sieve. Error is coming in. You don't even know it. The church is literally becoming more and more like stagnant water, full of bacteria. Morally, it's a cesspool. And yet you, you act like you, it's great. Things are fine. We need nothing. That's the disaster of spiritual mediocrity. Jesus hates it. What's amazing here is he needs to give them clarity, and so he gives them clarity, and it's the great counsel that he gives them. Verse 18, I counsel you, I advise you. I'm counseling you with certainty. I'm consulting with you. It's just a great verb, as we saw last time. He invites them to a discussion to gain clarity. You want some deliverance out of this disaster? I'm your source. Come to me, I'll give you clarity as to where you're at. Look, this is why we constantly elevate the truth in the church. It just brings clarity. Over and over again, it brings clarity. Look, I know error is leaking in. I know. I know error is leaking in through our immaturity, through our frailties, through our infirmities. It leaks in because Satan is scheming and he does subtle things. It leaks in because there are some here who, who are false professors and 
They just have yet to be exposed. Maybe they're on the fringes. There are others Satan is preparing even now to come and they will slip in and and they'll get among the crowd and then all of a sudden they'll start introducing some secret thing that becomes a destructive error for somebody and the sheep are pulled away. I know that 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 is happening. Well, the only way to gain clarity is to constantly put upon the minds of people and into the hearts of people the truth from Christ. And he's always inviting the church into a discussion about truth. It is no wonder that the sheep are so shredded by Satan in evangelicalism today because the shepherds are not actually shepherds. They're hirelings, and they don't give the sheep any ability to discern the truth. No clarity. Jesus invites you to come to his word and counsel with him, and you, as churches, many of them just decide, I either know better, so my opinions are better than Christ, or I don't actually believe what God's word says. You're either in unbelief, or you're in arrogance thinking your opinion is better or it's just laziness churches become really lazy about the truth it's just easier more comfortable Jesus says no you you don't you don't know your own condition you have need of everything you have need of absolute counsel and clarity from me in fact the irony is you got to buy it from me and so he says I want you to purchase these things from me what does he want them to purchase I want you to purchase a truly authentic church life a truly pure church life Gold refined by fire. This is come and have your faith refined so that you're spiritually actually rich. You're growing in your faith. You're growing in your understanding. You're becoming mature. And white garments. I want you to come in faith so that you're covered with my righteousness. And then in sanctification, it's producing, increasing righteousness in your life. You're conformed to the image of Christ. And I want you to see things rightly, he says. You got to come get these things from me. And so we saw the disaster of spiritual mediocrity and then the clarity of this divine counsel. From there, the Lord Jesus Christ moves then to really probably one of the most abrupt changes that occurs in Scripture when he is in the middle of a reproof. And we'll call this section the grace of promised fellowship. The grace of promised fellowship. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The stark contrast between verse 16 and verse 19 simply defies explanation, or so it seems. Verse 16, Jesus says, Because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I want to do it. I desire to do it. I must do it by my righteousness. I'm about to. I will do it. Because you're lukewarm. And then verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So here you have a church about to be vomited out of Christ's mouth, they're told that despite their claim to be spiritually rich, they're actually bankrupt. And then they're counseled about their desperate condition because they need forgiveness, they need justification, they need wisdom. 
And just when you think in this letter that this ministry is irretrievable and that their lamp is certainly going to be removed, suddenly God dispenses another call for them to respond rightly to their much-deserved rebuke. It would have been tragic had God ended at the end of verse 18. It would have been tragic. What happens when a church's lamp is taken away, especially one that thinks they need nothing? Well, the sign stays up. People still give to the cause, whatever it is they think they're giving to. The church is uh, an admixture, probably percentage-wise, just beginning to increase, an admixture of unbelievers who are moral, and they're sitting next to maybe a remnant here and there as it starts to become nothing but a worldly collection and gathering of unbelievers. And the Lord Jesus Christ because he loves his church and he loves its purity, when he removes the lampstand, he removes its gospel ministry effectiveness. That is to say, the Spirit of God will no longer use that place and that ministry for any kind of work to spread the gospel, any kind of eternal purpose. You might not know it when you look at a church, what its condition is. I mean, if we evaluate ministries by the superficial and rather pragmatic ways we evaluate it today, how would we ever know? How would we ever know? I mean, the way we evaluate ministries today, it's, it's all really about enthusiasm and event planning and how many people you get coming to small groups and budgets and, and the hot shots that you hire who kind of organize all this stuff and they're really, really good in the digital world, and they're great at branding, and the church has everything that, that we look at, and our eyes widen as if we're looking at a city full of lights, and we're just enamored with it. It's all this superficial window dressing. And we say, nah, a, that ministry's going. Jesus says, I, I, I'll, I'll take a place where you have squandered everything and then puffed yourself up in imagining yourself sufficient, and I'll just remove your lamp. And in doing so, it will, it will have a window front. It will have a brand. It will have its sign. It will have its false shepherds and its hirelings. And it will have its gathering of people. And they will all come enthusiastic. And they'll drink their coffee. And they'll organize their small groups. And someone will refer to the scriptures and say a verse or two, but have no idea what they're talking about. The people aren't fed. The shepherd is just as dumbed down as the sheep. The Spirit's not at work at all. What are the options for a place like that when Jesus removes the lampstand? What are the options? Well, there, there are many. Cult could become a cult when some guru rises up and kind of takes them off into whatever cults end up doing. Or it becomes a social gospel effort. You know, people want to salve their conscience, so they give a lot of money, and, and the church organizes all kinds of social gospel efforts. By the way, that Movement is on the rise. I mean, is it any wonder, 40 years of pragmatism, what was it going to lead to? A worldly church, mystic uh, paganism or mystical spirituality, and social gospel. These are the inevitable results of a pragmatic movement because the world comes in. The only way for you to salve your conscience in real ministry is to sort of do some Christian Peace Corps work. And that's what 
the church is reduced to, and the Lord Jesus Christ lets it happen as he removes the lamp. It would have been tragic if this letter had ended at verse 18. And that is why this promise of fellowship is such a move of grace. It is so much like our God. How can this be that God dispenses another call for them to rightly respond to their much-deserved rebuke? And some have said, as you work through the commentaries, that this is an indication of there being a group of people in the church who are faithful and not worthy of Christ's ejection and vomiting. They've said, oh, here are the reasons why. Because it says here, those whom I love. God can't love those whom he wants to spew out of his mouth. That's the general idea when you, when you read those who are trying to interpret this section. Those whom I love. Oh, he, he must be talking about a remnant in the church because he certainly isn't going to love those that he referred to in verse 16. Really? So God, though he hates and the wickedness and is angry with the wicked every day, it's therefore logical that he doesn't love the world, even those who are in the world and wicked. Sure, God does love them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, we're told to love our enemies because when we do so, we are like God our Father who sends rain on the just and the unjust. Look, there is a sense in which God does, in fact, love the world. Even if he doesn't pour out his special saving love on all. So it's not necessary to imagine that he's talking to a different group of people in verse 19, a group of believers, not necessarily. Or the commentators say, well, God wouldn't put his Laodicean enemies in the category of those whom he disciplines. Notice verse 19, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. He wouldn't put them in this category. Well, this isn't necessarily referring to someone who has yet repented. In fact, he calls them still to repent, verse 19. Moreover, this is the same group who do not seem to be yet dining with Jesus because they've not yet heard his voice and opened the door. Whether that's an end-time dining, as we'll talk about in a moment, or whether that's just right now, repent, and so that you can come to Christ and your church can finally be his again, this seems to be the same group who aren't yet doing that. They haven't yet repented. It's the same group. He's calling this same group to repent with zeal. So it seems reasonable that he's offering grace out of love to the same group who receives this rebuke. Believers aren't the only ones, by the way, who receive rebukes from God and calls to zealous repentance. Clearly, in fact, there's no way to come to Christ without being broken over sin, shattered over your guilt, and turning toward Christ from sin. And that, that means faith and repentance. There's no way to come to Christ in that way. So it doesn't necessitate that this is a group of believers that Jesus suddenly begins to refer to. He's talking to Laodicea. He is being gracious to a group of people who are smug, self-sufficient, self-deceived. And I love this about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is working to fulfill his redemptive heart. Our God is a saving God. 
Some have thought that because he mentions discipline here, this discipline language must mean there's a remnant of believers in the church. Well, there may have been one or two, but it's interesting to me that in the other letters, if there were one or two among those that were being condemned in the other letters, they're actually mentioned. Ephesus had some true Christians there, even though the church had lost its first love. The whole fellowship at Smyrna, of course, was faithful. Pergamum was condemned for its sin, but had some who did not deny the faith. Thyatira was strongly rebuked, but there were many who didn't follow Jezebel. In other words, when there are believers in the church, they're specifically mentioned among those who are receiving the rebuke for their unfaithfulness. Sardis is probably the most notable because Sardis is a dead church, but there were some there who hadn't yet soiled their garments. When you get to Laodicea, however, there's no specific mention of anyone who has kept themselves free from this arrogant lukewarmness. It's as though Jesus is making it clear, here's an entire church that is lukewarm, stagnant, self-sufficient, smug, arrogant, and they do not need me, and I am about to take away their lamp and cast them out. And yet here it is, just like the Lord our God, to express at the final hour divine love in a call to mercy and the discipline necessary to bring the heart to softness. This is like our God. He does that. How else would any of us get saved? It would be impossible. And for some of you who grew up hearing the gospel and maybe early in your life that softening happened and you came to Christ early, praise the Lord, you can be useful. There will be so much more usefulness for you. And yet there are many in this room who persisted against Christ and persisted against Christ, against the gospel over and over again, and he continued through some patient source, some servant of God, some avenue to still open up an opportunity for repentance. I think Jesus mentions discipline here because, not because there are Christians here who are under his discipline, although that's mentioned in Hebrews 12, that Christians who are legitimate children of God actually receive the discipline of the Lord. And the same text is quoted. It's actually a quote from Proverbs. That's true. Christians come under discipline when they are sinning. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 6, mentions the discipline of the Lord, and he's receiving those that he disciplines. And so it's a sign of legitimate sonship, being a legitimate child of God. But here, it's also true that a call to repentance and faith for conversion involves the discipline of the Lord in that process. And I believe that's what's happening here. The Lord is reproving them to soften them. Look, this is what the consequences of the sin of your life are supposed to produce. This is what they're supposed to produce. In fact, when you look back on the life before you came to Christ... 
if you look at it from that angle, you see that's exactly what the Lord was doing. He allowed circumstances and challenges and consequences from sin and the heavy weight of guilt coming down and then someone giving you the gospel or praying for you and that brings a further weight of guilt and this constant pressing, constant trouble in your life, constant circumstances that bring back on you everything that you have caused because of your self-centeredness and your self-worship. All of these things are the discipline of the Lord to draw someone to him. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you had the two criminals on either side of him. And it's interesting that that's precisely how this happened, at least in one of them. For a while, both of them, hanging there alongside Jesus, experiencing the consequences of their own life. They railed at him together. And then the consequences of one of them began to experience the merciful draw and discipline of God. And on that cross, one of them began to see the innocence of this man and he said to his friend, do you not even fear God? You see, right there, the, the discipline and reproof of the Lord's consequences were working on them. Say, so why is this important to us? Listen, when you are praying for unbelievers, do not forget how the Lord worked in rebuke and reproof and discipline on your life to bring about a softening. And that's what you ought to pray for. Don't pray that unbelievers, family members or friends or whatever, come out of their consequences. Pray that they're miserable in them. Sometimes when you pray for an unbeliever, uh, the, the most terrifying thing to me is when an unbeliever is passe, is indifferent. I'd rather have, just like this church, either fervency or hostility. I'd rather with an unbeliever have complete hostility because then I know the, the truth is still working and there's still a fight going on. When somebody becomes indifferent, smug, absolutely unwilling to consider anything, oh, they, they just assume spend time with you as not spend time with you. It's no big deal. I start to get really concerned because if they're not seeing the consequences of their life as any softening agent, if they're not seeing the emptiness that they go home to every night in the sense that everything in life that you pursue slips through your fingers like sand, if that's not working on them to produce a hostility toward the gospel or a softening, there's trouble. So what I believe is happening here is Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to allow your condition to begin to produce in you, if it will, a zeal to repent. A zeal to repent. You say, why would God do this? Look, beloved, this is our God. This is what he's like. Think about it. All the way back to the Old Testament, the history of Israel just demonstrates this over and over again. In the prophets, you have these long sections of reproof, and then you have God out of nowhere saying, oh, but but don't worry, I am raising up a remnant. I am coming in mercy. 39 chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah of reproof and rebuke, their rap sheet of sin and God's judgment, and it's followed immediately by words like these in Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. I mean, you have that same thing reflected here. Jesus is speaking kindly to Laodicea kindly to them. 
Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is to say, the nation was chastened and rebuked, and an entire generation or several of them of unbelievers was killed and wiped out. He preserved his people as a nation, but he killed an entire several generations of people who refused to believe him. And yet he says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. I'm still coming. My reward is with me, he would say later in verse 10. Like a shepherd will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them into his bosom. He'll gently lead the nursing ewes. This is our God. Look for a moment at the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16. This, perhaps, if you've never read it, would blow your mind. The prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 16, amazing reality of God's saving love. Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel talks here about Israel and how Israel was chosen from the land of their birth, the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. You were nobody. In fact, you were from pagan heritage. I don't have any interest in you. Verse 4, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You weren't even washed with water for cleansing. You weren't rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. You were thrown out into the open field. You were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were squirming there in your blood live. He goes on through this entire section and talks about how he brought Israel into palace life, into sonship, and dressed Israel up and gave the royal robes and the royal place and all the privileges. And you know what Israel did? Israel looked upon its own beauty and played the harlot against God the one to whom she was betrothed. And this entire section talks about her disgrace and therefore, what does God do? He judges her, he reproves her, he disciplines her for her unbelief. And verse 59 says, thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. What does he mean? You want to go play around with these other nations and these false gods? I'm going to give that generation to it. And then verse 60, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I'll establish an everlasting covenant with you. You can just feel the tension. You'll remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. I'll give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I'll establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How? So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. This is our God. He's a saving God. When the Pharisees and Israel had mandated Christ's murder and and deceptively done it and pulled it off. Peter preached to the Jews and 3,000 Jews were saved that first day. This is our God. 
shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus, in the middle of a church that is disgusting and repulsive, turns to this grace of a promised fellowship if they would be zealous and repent. I love that. Be zealous and repent. By the way, that's how God saves. You have to repent. When God does a work, when your consequences do work on your heart, you remember your conversion, you, you became humbled and broken, needy. Often when I hear conversion stories, it's just shattered, wiped out, worn out, tearful, broken, nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, can't get my thoughts straight, empty, everything seems futile, it's all hopeless. It isn't everybody's particular expression, but very often there's a humbled, broken heart that, that always then comes, it might be expressed differently, but always comes then in a confession of unworthiness and desperate need. There's some expression of unworthiness and desperate need, and Jesus is saying, I'm opening it up for you to come and say, you don't have everything down pat. You don't reach a plateau. You, you aren't in a condition where you need nothing. You actually are of desperation. You need me. I'm willing They must become convinced that Christ is their only hope, and then they must turn to him in repentance. Repentance. You know, I love it when God does a real work of repentance because it is so obvious. It's very difficult in the church to evaluate the heart when we can't see it. We just have to evaluate it by Scripture, and God sometimes makes it clear and obvious when someone's profession is false, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it's a... It's a field of tares among the wheat, and you can't really tell the difference. But when you can, it is a powerful reminder that you can only come by repentance, and no wonder Jesus calls for it here. If you want to come to the place where your eyes are opened and you do have riches now that are spiritual and garments that are now a covering of righteousness and now the power to become like Christ, it can only come through genuine penitence, genuine repentance. You say, what is it? Well, notice he says here, it comes through the reproving and discipline of your consequences. So a zeal to repent must be a recognition that you have this desperate need and the past bold claims are removed. I no longer claim that I'm not morally bankrupt. I now admit I am. Your thoughts have to change. Your perspective has to be a 180. Real repentance acknowledges sin as involving personal guilt and helplessness and a worthiness to be judged. Somewhere in there, that's got to be there because that is produced by God in this drawing process. It is the knowledge of sin. It also involves a grief. It involves a grief. I mean, here's the emotional statement Jesus makes. I want to spew you out of my mouth. That is powerful, very emotional dynamics from the Lord himself. I am so ready to launch you. And I want you to come to me. And if you will, I want it to be a zealous repentance. What is that going to involve? That is going to involve a manifest sorrow over being against God and blind in it. It's an inward 
grief that views your weakness with remorse. That's what he wants from this church. And then your convictions change. True repentance is a change in conviction. What is a conviction? It's a belief for which you will die or give your life. So there is this conviction element. And a belief for which you will die moves the will. So Christ is calling for Laodicea to look at their circumstances, to know of their miserable condition, to come to him for counsel, to purchase these things, and with zeal turn in their thoughts, in their emotions, and in their will. And I love this. Notice verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. When you come, the disposition of the Lord here for the church, for the sake of conversion, is that he is near and ready. And by the way, it's a verb form that means it is a continual near and ready disposition. The Lord draws near to the sinner and he's ready. Behold, I am continually knocking. And I love the idea in this verb that he's near. He is at the door. He's always at the door. By the way, this is not a treatise on God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. You know, sometimes we demand of texts things that that the text isn't trying to teach. You have to remember that you don't want to commit the purpose fallacy in your study of Scripture. That is to say, demand a purpose of a text that isn't the text's intention. Whatever text is teaching, that's what it's teaching. That's all it's teaching. The rest of Scripture may round out our understanding on these things. This is not a treatment of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This has all the elements of the drawing process. This has all the elements of God reaching out, and he is near and ready. Ready for what? He's ready for you to believe. Your conversion, he says to Laodicea, is as near as faith. It's as near as faith. We forget that sometimes. We forget Romans 10, verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Look, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And when you give someone the gospel, the gospel is right there in their presence. The truth of Christ is right there in front of them. And they do not have to see this big gap where they've got to clean up their life, where they've got to get everything right get everything in order, and then maybe they can bridge the gap to come to Jesus. No, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that he's Lord, you're saved, you're redeemed. That is what's happening here. Jesus is near and ready. He's standing at the door. He's ready to fellowship, and you come through faith and humility. And notice he vows here to fellowship eternally. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is likely a reference, not to the personal evangelism that we do. I know we've kind of used this verse for personal evangelism. And the truths in general could apply because conversion is in view here. 
But it isn't the, the old idea, at least I don't believe it, is the old idea that there is a person and Jesus is sort of standing at the door of their heart. The, the individual person's heart is not particularly in view here, even though the truth does, in some sense, apply to that. What is being spoken of here is the conversion of the church collectively so that they can be effective and fellowship with Christ, and I believe likely in the kingdom. I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. Look at chapter 19 very quickly. Revelation 19. This is likely, by the way, Jesus' commitment to be in eternal fellowship with his people. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 1, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he's judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, there it is, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. I believe that ultimately what Jesus invites Laodicea to be a part of is the eternal fellowship that he vows to have when you open, when you open, when the church repents. Look, don't think for a minute that evangelicalism in our culture is going to turn around until there is a collective repentance on the part of the church at large. There may be assemblies here and there that God works on and graciously changes and transforms, yes, but the movement as a whole is lost until it repents. You could say that the entirety of evangelicalism in our day is living in Laodicea. And they must repent. And until they hear the voice of Christ with ears of faith, and until they open the door with repentance... He's not going to come in. There isn't going to be any fellowship now or eternally. But Jesus says, I'll go even beyond the grace of promised fellowship to the glory of reigning with the king. Verse 21, what a promise. He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is, this is a granting, essentially, 
of the sort of the extended people of God as they rule and reign with Christ. Sitting on his throne is merely the, the description of our doing his bidding in the kingdom when we reign with him. We do his bidding. We do his bidding with the authority of Christ. We do his bidding because we have inherited all that Christ has purchased. So we are co-heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God himself. We have the kingdom as we referred to this morning in Luke 12 and we'll look at next time. The Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. If you repent, I'll not only come in and dine with you and fellowship with you eternally, but I'll grant you to do my bidding in the kingdom. To be in positions of representative authority. You will be my right, my vice, reigning servants in the kingdom. What will that be like? As Christ does his father's ruling and reigning on his behalf as the son of God, the right hand of the father, and he will sit on the throne of his father David in the kingdom eternally. So we, in that sense, are vice servants, vice regents. We do Christ's bidding as those who have repented. The overcoming terminology here is the same as it's been in every letter, all the way to the end, perseverance. Perseverance. You say, well, I don't want to be lost. Then come under the commands of Scripture and don't become self-sufficient and blinded don't water the seeds of apostasy in your heart. That's the point of the terminology. He who overcomes, he who goes all the way to the end. Christ went all the way to the end. He went all the way to the place where he died. He became obedient unto death, and therefore God highly exalted him, Philippians says. So Christ mentions it here. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne, I completed my task for you. So I want you to go all the way and complete your task on my behalf, on behalf of my name, with my strength and power. Persevere. And that then brings all of the warnings in this letter into clear view for us. Oh, I never want to say I'm rich when I need Christ. I want to be rich toward God and rich in Christ alone. I never want to imagine that I am spiritually wealthy when I haven't considered at all what Christ would want me to do by his word. I've never been repentant about sin. I've not been interested in the clarity of his truth. We've just sort of been interested in the surface, superficial church stuff that goes on. And I never want to say, oh, I've reached a plateau. I've arrived. I have need of nothing. And you go into some of these ministries, and that's the culture. They have need of nothing. You bring a Bible, and you just try to sit down with some leader somewhere and say, hey, what does your ministry mean when Christ says this kind of stuff? What are you talking about? We don't have need of any of that. Some of the discussions I get into with people in the pragmatic movement, it's just staggering to me. They essentially are saying, I have no need of that kind of clarity or discussion. We are the ones who have become the masters of ministry. Jesus warns here, no, no, you're blind. 
And so it's a warning to me. If I'm going to persevere, I cannot say my spiritual condition is evaluated by my own opinion. It's evaluated by Christ. I do not believe that I have need of nothing. I have need of Christ, only Christ, always Christ. If our ministry stops begging Christ to move in our midst, we are done. We must beg him to move every day. Beg him to to work. Beg his spirit to work in our lives, in our hearts. We have a generation of young people in this church coming up, and they are taught to sit back. They are taught that they are entitled. They are taught that they need nothing. They are taught that they're already arrived simply because they breathe. And I want them to wake up every day saying, I need Christ today. I have have a desperate appetite for him. I have not arrived. I need him. I need the spirit to move. Or I will not survive the day. Because apart from him, I can do nothing. Right underneath those words, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, above those doors, we ought to put, apart from him, we can do nothing. Because that is how a church overcomes. And like the other letters, Jesus says, if you have ears of faith, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't want to be lukewarm, beloved. We want to go all the way to the end, desperately needing Christ. We do not want him to pass us by, cast us off. We do not want to be blind as to our need. We want to watch out for his discipline. We want to make sure our gospel is clear. We want to walk every day in desperate need of the nutrients that flow between the vine and the branches. We want to let him prune us so that we bear the most fruit and that that fruit remains. And any time we think of Christ, we ought to think of his nearness as our good and his word as our clarity, his promise of fellowship as our hope, and the glory of his kingdom as our target. What would Christ say about Grace Emmanuel Bible Church? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are again brought to account in our hearts. This is your assembly. This is your fellowship. And we can become so comfortable, entitled, arrogant, murky. We can become so selfish, uninterested. We can become lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. We can be those who ignore the consequences of our limitations and weakness and sin instead of letting it soften us. We can be those who have shallow repentance or none at all. We can be those who say we have need of nothing. 
those who stop coming to you for counsel, stop looking to your word for clarity, and stop thinking about the righteousness that you have promised in the gospel to both cover us positionally that we're acceptable before you and the power to change us, make us like you. We can stop looking at those things. Keep us from that sin, Lord. Keep us from being a place that makes you gag. We pray that you'd attend our ministry, that you'd want to be with your people here at GIBC. And we'd be faithful to your truth, eyes and ears of faith and repentance, a will submitted, looking to the kingdom, looking to dine with you in the kingdom, to reign with you and do your bidding, to persevere in the commands, to get up every day and think to plead with you to move in our lives, to never imagine that we're one condition without looking to what you say. Father, help us to be faithful so that we will overcome, go all the way to the end, and that you could actually use us and never remove our lampstand while we sit blind. And we never get to the place where we think a great work is going on, and yet systemically this work of stagnation grows. Keep us from those things. And as we pass the baton to the next generation, may we pass it with this kind of clarity that we may find passionate hearts zealous to, to love you and to be reproved by you and disciplined by you and to repent, to be truly assured of their conversion and to persevere in your work. This is why we're here, Lord. We're not here for any other you know, sort of club to be a part of. We're here to serve you, to be your slaves. Unworthy though we are, you do what we ought to do because you have saved us, you've redeemed us, you've purchased us. We're yours, we're not our own. So may we do everything to your glory. May we be useful in this way. We pray for, for you, our King, for your honor. Amen.